Boy, that came up today, too. Uh, I was on a webinar this morning for my day job, my fancy-dancy day job, and the people running the webinar uh, weren't sure that they were being heard, and they said, if you can hear us, let the moderator know in the chat. And I typed in the chat, tell him I can hear him, but it really didn't have the same inflection. <laughs> because nobody else gets your humor like I do and our listeners do. Our, our, our uh, thousand to, uh, no, our 1,500 to 2,500 listeners. And if you go by newspaper circulation math, that's uh, every copy sold is 2.4 <laughs> listeners or whatever it was. That would that would mean that people are kind of sitting around their computer or sitting around, you know, a phone with a Bluetooth speaker listening to the podcast. I suppose that's possible, but I, I didn't think there was a real pass along rate in terms of podcast listeners. Yeah, probably not. But uh, if we, if we want to stretch it, maybe people in the car together on the commute to work, uh, blasting in the gym during workouts. That's like 60 people at once. Right. I like your no? thinking. I, I think uh, what we should do then is we should go just full NFL and prohibit people from listening to the the uh, the podcast and groups, so that we get the full ratings that we're entitled to. Like you know, all the uh, how they crack down on all those uh, uh, watch parties for the big game. I thought you were going to do the thing where you where you say the the copyright at the end, which you can do by memory, right? This copyrighted broadcast of D3Sports.com is the property of D3Sports and intended solely for the private personal use of our audience. That one. Express written consent. That's where it gets good. <laughs> Any other broadcast, rebroadcast, or other use of descriptions and accounts of this podcast without the express written consent of D3Sports.com is strictly prohibited. Well, it's been since uh, the end of the stag bowl since we've uh, we've gotten together, Pat, and there's a lot of ground to cover, so maybe we should get to it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools. And yeah, we do a podcast in January. Everybody else is focused on some big game being played someplace where there's not really much Division III and, you know, not really involving any Division III players. Hey, that's great. But who are the chefs? But we are still here bringing you the Division III football I'm Pat Coleman. I'm the uh, editor and publisher of D3Football.com. we got Keith McMillan back here to uh, get us through the uh, the off-season portion of season number 12 of this podcast. Keith, uh, I'm glad that uh, we're still doing this. Yeah, um, you know, the t- taking that break, I, th- I love the way the season ends and it wraps up before the holidays and you can spend some time with your family and turn the page into the new year. Um, I, For me you know, bowl games stretching to January 7th or 10th is a little much. So I I like the way the D3 season wraps up. And uh, a lot of times from between the stag bowl and our January podcast, there's, you know, some um, coaching changes or um, players maybe that we thought were coming back that aren't coming back or something. But a lot of times there's not a a whole heck of a lot of major news, but this time around uh, there really was some huge news. Yeah, there's, of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's coaching moves, and we will talk about that, but we can't talk about that before we talk about the story that kind of blindsided everybody back at the beginning of January, and that is the death of Johns Hopkins coach Jim Margraff, who passed away at the age of 59 back on January the 2nd. It's one of those things, Keith, where similarly with Mike Drass, and even more surprisingly, I think, than, than Mike Drass's, you get the news, and it's unconfirmed, and I'm like, that seems highly unlikely, and I'm already, you know, immediately 
kind of saddened and disappointed by it. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, we have to scramble to confirm this. And then we have to put news together. But my goodness, it was, uh, you know, kind of the the peak of the high, the highest perhaps high that uh, Johns Hopkins football program has ever had. And then, you know, just a few weeks later to get this devastating news. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always devastating first for the people who are closest to the program and then for those who played for him, whether it was, you know, a year ago or 30 years ago, you still have ties to uh, to someone that, that you know, helped raise you as a man in, in a lot of ways. And, and we'll hear uh, Coach Kamara talk a little bit about that uh, in his own life experience. Um but I also think too, like there was there was this moment when we knew that Johns Hopkins was gonna get through to the Final Four, and it was like three of the the big dogs in D three, Mount Union, UW Whitewater, and Mary Harden Baylor, and then Johns Hopkins was the fourth team, and and I was the source of some, you know, consternation about maybe they should have re the bracket should have been done differently, so St. Johns had a chance to get through because to a lot of people, uh, that was one of the top four teams in the country, but. Then we had this moment, and I think we said it on the podcast, Pat, where we're like, the cool thing is the D3 world is going to get to know Jim Margraff and Johns Hopkins and what a kind of great perspective he has on D3 football and what a cool program this is because obviously it's one of your, your um, premier academic institutions in the world, but they figured out how to be themselves and still be really good at football, and they're sort of one of the the the, the – D3 ideals, right, that a lot of us would like to live up to. So we thought it was really cool that that we all got a chance to get to know Jim Margraff. And even though it's super cliche to say this, you just never know um, when it's going to be your last time. And I had, I never, I didn't think we just saw him, I just saw him out in, in Alliance and they'd gone out there and, and played a great game um, against Mount Union. One, they probably felt they they could have won if they'd done a couple of things differently, if they caught a couple of breaks. Um, and to go out in style, of course, none of us knew it at the time, but that was his last game coaching. And and that was also his program putting its best foot forward on, on the biggest stage. So, you know, as sad as it is, and I think we've all had some time to, to process, uh, you know, that it happened and that it caught us off guard. He died in his sleep. Um, that is one of the lasting memories where coach builds this program up little by little over the years. And then it gets to almost the pinnacle. And then now you leave behind a program. I think that's well-equipped to move on even in his absence because his influence is going to live on long past uh, his actual physical presence. We're going to talk about this more coming up after our break. Greg Camara, who is the uh, has been the, the assistant uh, assistant coach, the offensive coordinator there for several years, and played under Jim Margraff, uh, is the interim head coach. We will chat with him. We will also chat in the course of this podcast with John Drock. He's the head coach at Wilkes. That's a team that bounced back from zero and ten to five and five last year. Pretty good year. And then uh, Tevin Jones will be our guest in the third segment of this January podcast. Uh, Tevin Jones is the guy who was, uh, you know, the heir apparent perhaps to some of the greatness at, uh, on the defensive side, some of the greatness at linebacker at Mary Harden Baylor was the, the pick of uh, many of us for uh, defensive player of the year back in the preseason. And then he missed the entire season. We all have a, uh, we'll have an interview with him coming up later, later on in this podcast. Uh, Keith, some of the other 
man, some of the, it's hard to lump the rest of this into coaching changes. So let's uh, let's skip uh, that for just a moment. Uh, news made over the course of the past week or so that Anthony Meglin, the uh, quarterback, starting quarterback at John Carroll, who helped lead them to the national semifinals back in 2016 and uh, played the last two years as well, uh, decided he was not going to come back for his fourth year of eligibility. And that, that made some waves, and, and it was interesting because, you know, that's a guy who, uh, at the very least, is, if not the heir apparent at quarterback for one more season, uh, you know, certainly the perhaps even the guy at quarterback for a team that uh, many thought would be uh, a team that would go very deep into the playoffs this past year. Well, I think the startling part is, um, you know, that you just assume that every player in a prominent position in D3 has this undying passion for football and and when you read what he uh what he told the local papers there in cleveland he basically said i don't want to come back for this uh last season and be 70 percent in it's not fair to the to the guys who are 100 percent in and you know you got to be all in if you're if you're playing football and i think that's especially especially true at the division three level where your your studies are clearly a huge priority you don't really get a whole lot of extra benefit uh, from being a football player, uh, air quotes, where you you know there's extra special reason to hang around campus for another year. So if he's going to graduate in the spring, uh, and the only reason to come back, right? If you're done school and and you know there's no super special um, status you get by being a football player on campus, you the only reason you're really coming back is to play uh, one more season. You got to really want it, and uh, and it sounds like he didn't. Um, you know, tired of of the injuries and and didn't have the uh, the passion for it, and uh, you can't knock a guy's. Um, you know, you'd rather find that out as a team and as a program. You'd rather find that out now in the off season in December and January, in February, rather than find that out right before week one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that's a that's a very good point. So yeah, it does give John Carroll, of course, the entirety of spring practice. Not a game. Not a game. Not a game. We talking about practice and all that uh, in the summer to come up with uh, what the plan is next at quarterback. Uh, you know, that is, uh, of course, Meglin had uh, great success under Tom Arth. He is the guy who was uh, the head coach and, of course, a former D3Football.com All-America quarterback at John Carroll. He left to be the head coach at UT Chattanooga and now has moved up the ladder as well. So he's a guy who's now the head coach at Division One. FBS at Akron. So I don't know if anybody can have success at Akron, but maybe Tom Arth can. So that'll be interesting to watch. And one of many uh, former Division Three players right now is who are head coaches at a higher level. But let's talk about the guys who are at this level. And I think the most interesting coaching change uh, over the course of the last uh, month and a half or so is BJ Hammer leaving Allegheny and going to Bowdoin. I just would not have would not have picked. I would not have predicted that uh, he would leave a program where he's had success in a very short time, has brought that team, you know, kind of off the mat and had them six and four this past season, and is going to a situation where that team is on the mat as well at Bowdoin. Sure. And as we later get into the podcast and we talk about what it takes for a coach to find a new program uh, with, with Coach Stratch from, from Wilkes, you know, where you're leaving a place where you've been a successful assistant and then you, you, go to this new place and it has to be a place you love and you buy in and you build. Um, it's, it's all, it has to take a lot to, to leave that and leave that next step. And, you know, we don't know necessarily what the reasons are, but remember back, I couldn't tell you the podcast off top, but I'm going to guess in the two tens somewhere. 
um, where we talked to uh, to Tom Jornel when he went to, to Carlton. And, and we thought, mm, that's confused. You know, he left Wisconsin Stevens Point, which we would think, OK, that's a better job. But you realize there there are other reasons he got the, he got a chance to to coach his uh, his son, and so that was one of the reasons for him. I'll, sometimes the reasons are um, stability or better pay. You know, same reasons you and I would switch jobs, yeah. right? Uh, you know, I don't know, closer to family, things like that. So there are a lot of other reasons. And I think for us, from where we sit, it's always weird to see somebody uh, go into the NESCAC and especially to Bowdoin, where um, that's not a top half. NESCAC program ever it's basically right um always in your in your bottom half and so that's a challenge and here's a guy who just spent four years taking a bottom half of his conference program to a winning record to a, to a point where they're maybe in a year or two a threat to to win the conference and then starting all over again but again people have uh their own reasons for uh for moving on and and uh yeah it's certainly one of the more curious ones but it wasn't the only one Good pull on Tom Janelle, by the way. That's podcast 203 for anybody who's willing to go back. 31 podcasts in the feed and only four months. Right. Not the only uh, not the only surprise or, you know, or interesting coaching change. Gabby Price at Husson, who is a had uh, 12 seasons as head coach over two stints. Basically the uh, the most successful of the two, I believe, head coaches that uh, Husson has had for football. He decides to hang them up. He is uh, so Husson will be going into a new conference and going into the CCC, the Commonwealth Coast Conference from the ECFC, and then they will be going in with uh, with a brand new coach too. Weiner, I don't know if they're blaming Google or whatever, or if Mike Kelly's still blaming Google, but he is out as head coach. And I'm blaming Google of the Pride, and then Dan Larson, the head coach at uh, UW Eau Claire, uh, an alum. He was hired just a couple of years ago. He got them out of the basement in the WIAC, and now he is no longer the head coach. It is hard to argue with a spot on the uh, the powerhouse in Division One FCS football when North Dakota State comes calling and you're a Division Three head coach. I'm pretty sure you're going to jump no matter what position they're offering you. Yeah, and, and that's what uh, Dan Larson did. Now, we thought he was um, maybe getting ready to, to turn around uh, Wisconsin-Eau Claire and... Hey, where are you going to school next year? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Big school. And, you know, we hadn't seen the results necessarily, and that's certainly a tough conference to get turned around in, as uh, we talked with Matt Walker on a previous podcast about the same thing. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. North Dakota State is the Mountain Union of of FCS at this point, so um, or the Mary Hardin-Baylor of FCS. So, um, so, yeah, I mean – you saw how quickly someone like Tom Arth moved up the ranks uh, when, when he when he took uh, you know his leap. So you can't blame a guy for doing that. Those are the big coaching changes that uh, happened since the last time we had a podcast. Uh, we will, uh, of course, take a Twitter question from, from you guys a little bit later on in this podcast, and we will have our three interviews. And if you're this is the first time that you're listening to one of our off-season podcasts, this is what we do. We uh, recap the news. We talk about the hot topics at the top, and then we typically have three interviews. So uh, that is something that uh, we started doing a couple years ago, and I really enjoy getting a chance to sit down and chat with these coaches in a slightly more long-form format, for lack of a better term. So uh, we will be doing that, and we'll be doing it once a month from now through the end of the off season. And then we will start huh, season 13 of the podcast uh, sometime around that first week of September. 
but I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is available for sponsorship, and especially here during the offseason, you are reaching a higher percentage of coaches, I think, than you normally would. You know, whereas we understand that sometimes the fans drift away. Maybe they go follow Division Three basketball for, for a few weeks and then follow Division Three baseball, or, you know, maybe they spend some time with their families. I'm, I'm not sure what that's about, but uh, right now, your audience is much higher percentage coaches than the, it usually is. And those are the people who are doing this stuff right now, right? They are planning their uh, their upcoming season. You know, if there are uh, refurb projects in the works for stadiums or for locker rooms, that's still a big thing. We have not at all finished the locker room uh, escalation wars here. So those are all things that schools are going to spend buco bucks on. And you can reach those people who are making those decisions by sponsoring the D3Football.com podcast. Keith and I would wax poetic about your product or service right here in break. So think about it and uh, drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We have uh, we have an audience that wants to support people who support us. So support us so they'll support you. And thank you for your support. Now on the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Greg Camaro, who is the uh, the interim head coach at Johns Hopkins University, who of course, uh, came to this position shortly after the sudden, sudden passing of Jim Margraff, who had been the head football coach for 29 years. Um, Greg, first of all, I really appreciate you joining us. It has been, it was really uh, emotional for us. And, you know, we didn't even work for the man. Uh, you know, we just uh, had some great conversations with him over the course of the 20 years that we've been covering Division Three football. Um, what was it like when... Uh, when, when you guys found out and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Pat. You know, anytime you get a chance to talk about Johns Hopkins football, uh, it's a good thing. But, um, yeah, so I was flying home from Chicago, uh, and I got a call from, from Coach Margaret's youngest son. So, you know, really hard for me personally. You know, I played for Hopkins, so I've been around Coach pretty much every day since 2005. So really tough news personally. Um, and then just immediately, you know, thoughts went to his family. He's, you know, three kids and, his wife, Alice, who's, who's awesome. And, you know, the kind of thoughts went that way um, at first and then to our players and just, you know, to the whole community, you know, he was, a, he was a special guy to everybody. And, you know, I think, like you said, I mean, I think everyone who, you know, crossed paths with them at some point in their lives really felt the news and, um, you know, kind of felt that tragedy all at the same time. So, you know, it was super tough then and, and, you know, it's still super tough now for everybody. Yeah, you don't get to 29 years with one institution without making a lot of friends and uh, and being well known in the community. We saw lots of you know uh, outpouring of support from uh, from the Naval Academy, from the Baltimore Ravens, and other people in and around Baltimore and Washington D.C. as well. Did did that make you guys? I don't know, f- not feel better, but it was it was it good to see the kind of outpouring of respect and respects paid for him from all of those various institutions of football. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, nothing good is, is coming from this situation, but um, just the outpouring of support and love and, you know, people reaching out from all over the country. And, you know, I think some of the unique things is everyone who, you know, met Coach Margraff knows what a great guy he is. And obviously all of us who have been around him for multiple years, but, you know, people who met him once in 1987 who are reaching out and saying he made an impact on their lives. You know, just, you know, it just tells you what kind of man he was. And, you know, a lot of people use the same attributes of, of humble and selfless and dedicated and caring and, when everyone's using the same four or five adjectives about you, you know, it means you lived a pretty good life. So, um, you know, seeing all the outpouring on, on social media and just, you know, emails and letters we received and, 
um, it was incredible, honestly. This was a conversation I would have loved to have had with him at some point on one of these off-season podcasts as we get uh, out of the 2018 season and kind of move forward into 2019. But it was a fantastic season for Johns Hopkins football. Uh, you know, a run to the national semifinals, a, a, a great performance in coming up short in the national semifinals. How does, you know, where does that, how far back in the memory is that now with, you know, everything that has happened since then? Um, you know, it's not that far back. You know, it's something that coach was super proud of. You know, he built this program um, from a, you know, one in nine team to, to what we are today. So I think he would want us to reflect on the season and, you know, make sure our guys know what they accomplished. And, you know, we have the memorial for coach this Saturday and we have our team banquet on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be an emotional weekend, but, you know, he would want us to celebrate the season and it was the best year in his career and obviously all of us in the program. So, you know, we were super excited and, you know, it's, it's still fresh in the minds, but obviously a little tainted with, with what's happened since. But, you know, the last thing he would want is for us to be thinking about him and not the season. So we're going to do our best to try to kind of live each day how he would want us to. And so you're the interim head coach and they're going through a, a national hiring process. And I'm sure that, you know, the the, the prominence of the of the program and the institution means that a lot of people will be uh, vying for that job. But what is it that uh, you're taking kind of going forward? How are you trying to keep the momentum going and kind of just set everybody up for success again in 2019? Yeah, I think it is a great job. I mean, it's a, one of the best institutions in the world. And the 90 players we have on our roster are incredible people. So, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if um, if anyone applied to the job, I just think it's a great situation at Hopkins. And what we're trying to do is just take what he's taught us. And, and again, I've coached with him every day for 10 years. So I got a front row seat on what it's like to be a great head coach. And, you know, I, I feel like I learned from, from the best guy out there. So we're just trying to take it one day at a time and focus on recruiting and getting our players back to campus and getting the workouts in and just trying to move on one day at a time, one task at a time, not trying to make anything bigger than it is and, you know, keep the program rolling. You, of course, have been the offensive coordinator now for the past several seasons. It was a, a specifically uh, a great, particularly great season for the Johns Hopkins offense. Uh, David Tomorrow really kind of came into his own. You got great contributions from uh, Stuart Walters in his return to the program. Um, what, is the, what does the offense look like as you uh, move forward? Who is coming back, and what are the key pieces that uh, you guys are going to be focused around? Yeah, it was a great season offensively, and we've been prowling on offense for about 10 years now, and David's just the, the most recent guy in a long line of, you know, just stellar quarterback play that we've had at Hopkins. You know, I've been fortunate to have three unbelievable players in my five years as coordinator. So the offense looks great coming back. You know, David being a senior has full command on the offense. Um, you know, I think he's a next level type player. We have a bunch of skill guys coming back. We were playing freshmen this year uh, against Mount. Um, I think, you know, our, our starting tight end, it was a freshman who caught the most passes in that semifinal game. So I think it's a bright future on offense and, and a really bright future all the way around the program. Our defense was playing six freshmen at one time against Mount. Yeah. So I, I think the you know the program's in great hands, and our players are hungrier than ever to, to get back that spot, and you know hopefully eventually get to the national championship. Yeah, and we had talked with uh, with Coach Margraf back in November about uh, about the, that great freshman class and how many of them were playing such key roles. I know the defense is not your side of the ball, and you you may not have spent as much time, uh, you know, focusing on them over the course of the season. But what do you specifically uh, what did you specifically see from the defense, and how do you expect to see those guys, especially the guys who become sophomores in 2019, improve for the next season? Yeah, the defense is great. Our defensive coordinator does an awesome job, Mickey Raring. And I think we have a really good mix of 
older players who are leaders, like Mike Kalanick, our defensive end. He was our first junior captain since 2009. Uh, James Kloss, our middle linebacker, is going to be a senior. He's an unbelievable player, had a great year. And you mix those senior leaders um, with, with the freshman talent that we have, and it's a scary defense. I mean, I think Robert Fletcher, who was the rookie of the year in the Centennial Conference, you know, has the potential to be one of the best players we've ever had in program history. Um, we have two safeties that could have started this year, but they were behind two senior captains. So I, I think the senior leadership with the freshman talent uh, is going to make our defense, you know, one of the best we've ever had. You're going to be going out there, and of course you already have been out there, recruiting the incoming class for the fall of 2019, the guys who would be graduating from Johns Hopkins University in the spring of, of 2023. A lot of these guys will have, you know, never met Jim Margraff or certainly will not have played under him or, or uh, have been coached by him. What do you want the future Johns Hopkins Blue Jays to know about Jim Margraff? That's a great question. I think when you come on campus and you know, we've had two official weekends the past two weekends, um, you can kind of feel what he's built. There's a certain culture that we live every day and that, that our players um, you know, follow on and off the field. I think you kind of feel that when you come to Hopkins. Um, it's a special place. Uh, we have special players. We have special coaches. And, um, you know, I just want those guys to know what kind of legacy he built and to try to, you know, keep it going. So, you know, most of the guys did have a chance to meet him, you know, at a campus summer or on an earlier visit to campus. And I think those guys are even more eager to play for Hopkins now to kind of continue on what he built, um, you know, especially after meeting him and seeing what kind of great guy he is. You know, all the recruits who have met him before, you know, were offering their condolences, but then also telling us how that, you know, 30-minute hour conversation really kind of changed their outlook on college football. So, you know, I think he can touch lives moving forward, you know, and, uh, you know, that program will kind of live under his legacy for a long time. And you, of course, you played for him as well, so you had a chance to meet him as a young man and now, you know, into, uh, into, into your coaching career. What were the lessons that you kind of took away from, you know, uh, playing for him and, you know, knowing him when you were young? You know, he was very influential in my life and, you know, maybe want to coach football as a profession – um, you know, all of his lessons were, were way bigger than football. It was never about winning a certain game or, um, you know, doing something for, you know, a football thing. It was always a, a bigger lesson that he wanted to get across. And, um, you know, with the basics of being, you know, do the right thing. You know, and he would tell our guys, you know, if you don't know if you're doing the right thing, call me and I'll let you know. You know, so he's just a, a good guy. And, um, you know, he would say pressures for surgeons and soldiers, you know, not college football players. So always, always teaching bigger lessons than football. And I think it helps our guys get ready for what they're going to do after graduation. Um, and, you know, all those lessons, you know, I think half the things I say in life are quotes from Coach Margraff. So um, it's kind of just embedded in what I think and what I believe. And, um, you know, from 2005 until up until the last conversation we had, you know, he's constantly teaching me different things and you know, teaching me how to be a better coach, better man, uh, you know, better son, better brother. And, you know, it was always bigger than just uh, in between the lines. Bigger than what's between the lines just kind of sums it up right there, Keith. It, it always is the case too with um you know with these with these great coaches where they're they they're you know leaders of men and uh, and you're just campus leaders and, and and folks who are sort of in some cases larger than life if when it comes to the school you think of Le, uh, Larry Karras you think of Mount Union you think of Larry Karras you think of Wesley you think of Mike Drass and I think in this case in a lot of ways there's certainly other reasons to to know Johns Hopkins uh, and Johns Hopkins athletics but but he was you saw the outpouring and you mentioned it in the interview where it, it wasn't just um johns hopkins who reacted to to losing him but it was everyone who's anyone in maryland whether it's the ravens or uh university of maryland or you know under armor or whatever so um 
I, I, I do think that's like a huge part of, of the, the legacy is, you know, being a father figure. And we'll hear that too later on in the podcast where, where coaching is sometimes, um, your concern for a player doesn't have anything to do with their play. But I think too, you can almost go too far in that direction and, and praise the man and, and praise the, you know, we, we love Jim Margot just cause he was always so even keeled and, and excited about the opportunity to give Johns Hopkins a chance to compete with the best in D3, right. And, and put their best foot forward. That's what the playoffs are supposed to be for. And some of those matchups end up being terrible, but his team always seemed ready to play and ready to give uh, some other great team, you know, it's best shot. Usually when Hopkins went out of the playoffs, it, it was a, a dogfight for lack of a better term. But I also, I, I think we can get too far down the path of, Hey, this guy was such a great man that, um, you know, you, you forget that that all these coaches from Frosty Westring to John Gallardi to Drass and, and you know, the, the guys who've passed on, that their legacies extend far beyond the field, fine. But it, it's because it's a game, I guess, about motivating men to work together, to sacrifice for something bigger than individual than, than just the individual, you, you realize that coaching is, you know, clearly more than X's and O's, but I don't think that should diminish their on-field genius. And, and maybe it even goes to show that the game is hardly even about those X and O's, right? It's about getting player buy-in. It's about getting the most out of players you've recruited and players you've put into position to succeed. So I just like to make sure that as we talk about these men and their legacies, the way we speak you know, about them becomes almost kind of folksy. And we, we talk about them as, as sort of figures and heroes. But you don't last 29 years at a Division three program if you aren't winning and, and graduating players. So let's not forget those parts of the legacy either. There'll be big shoes to fill for whoever ends up with that job going into the fall. I agree. And also big expectations because as you heard coach Kamara talk about um, a lot of freshmen were in key spots last year. And then as we saw this past season with Brockport, right? A team that got to the final four in 2017 and returned a lot of key players. The expectations are now not just to get back to where you were, but to take it one step further and get to Shenandoah, right? To get to the Stag Bowl. So um, the expectations for Hopkins now, you know, you can, you belong on the same field as Mount Union. Well, then you're like, well, what's stopping us from getting to the Stag Bowl? And I think the expectations are going to be through the roof next year. You have a, a quarterback with all American potential and, uh, and David Tamaro. So, I, I think it's a, uh, as you mentioned, it'll be a, a highly desired job, but it'll also be a program that we're watching pretty much every single week now, because um, not only do we think, not only do we want to see how they perform without Coach Margraf at the helm, but they're also a team that's primed to be a, a, a team that, that could go deep into the postseason. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by John Drock, the head coach at Wilkes University, finishing up uh, his first full calendar year as the head coach of the Colonels. And uh, Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it, Pat. Thanks so much. I know that we are reaching you as the uh, whatever snowstorm fancy name this is called by the uh, by uh, the Weather Channel is uh, bearing down on your part of the country and many other parts of the country. Uh, what is the what, sure. is, what is this doing to what you guys are planning right now? 
I mean, right now our kids just got back onto campus. So we had our first week of school last week, and then we had a recruiting visit planned for this weekend. So we had to kind of relocate some of those guys as far as that goes and just change the date and, and cancel it. There is a state of emergency in Pennsylvania today starting at about noon. So we're expecting to get covered by Storm Harper or whatever it's called, like you said. Um, at, at this point, but we decided it was probably the safest thing to do for our kids, their families to kind of postpone, postpone it at this point. You're in your first year as the head coach, uh, you, of course, uh, coached the, the past season after uh, spending uh, time as the offensive coordinator at Hobart. On a scale of, mm-hmm. say, one to Ali Marpet, how Hobarty is the Wilkes <laughs> program right now? Oh man, uh, I think that I don't know if anything compares to Ali Marpet. That's my guy. Um, but uh, I think that we're in a really good spot as we move forward. We return nine starters on offense and nine starters on defense uh, next fall, and we were able to change a lot of things uh, last season. You know, we kind of changed the expectation of what we did on and off the field, and I think that really showed in our play. You know what I mean? We had a disciplined football team. We had guys that were really passionate about being there. And now we're just trying to build that. You know what I mean? And uh, with this first full recruiting class, this is the first time we get to go through an entire recruiting cycle with a group of young men. Um, I still had, I think, 23 or 24 guys that went to Hobart for me last year (laughs) before I took this job. You know what I mean? So um, this is the first full cycle of us recruiting here at Wilkes. And, And, you know, we're just looking forward to building that family up even more. Yeah, what's it like when you're taking over in February at a, at a coaching yeah. spot like this? What's it like then for the recruiting cycle and then getting ready for the season? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's tough. Uh, I'll be honest with you, man. I mean, anybody that has to jump in late in mid-season on the recruiting cycle and that kind of thing. And I mean, most of us have all been coaches at other places. And when you're there, you're all in there. And then when you're here, you're all in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you're, you're really trying to um, accentuate your best attributes. Uh, and show kids what you're about as a person. I think that's something in recruiting that's really, really important that um, the kids buy into you uh, first and foremost, and then they get to see the university and what opportunities that university can provide for them um, socially, athletically, uh, professionally, um, and then put the ball in their court and let them make the decision what's best for them. And, you know, we were able to put together a solid recruiting class last year. And we actually had a lot of freshmen playing for us this past fall. I think we started three freshmen in the offensive line and three freshmen on the defensive side of the ball too. So, I mean, we were able to get some good young kids and we're looking forward to building that as we kind of go forward, but it's definitely you're playing behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah. And I think people expected that uh, Wilkes was a, a program that would probably bounce back that the Owen 10 that happened before you got there was really out of character as I look back at kickoff, we projected you guys to go four and six. You guys even beat mm-hmm. that expectation. When did you feel like that the that once you got there that this was going to be okay, that you were going to turn it around pretty quickly? I mean, I think before I even took the position, Pat, um, that was one of the things for me that was really important. I had a great situation at Hobart. I love all my kids at Hobart, and it was a great spot. And Coach Craig did a lot for me, and I'm still really close with Kevin and all those guys over there, and I wish them all the best. But for me to leave, um, it it was going to have to be a special opportunity. And we had a lot coming back, and they had a lot of resources here. And they're very invested in this football program being an excellent football program and the hallmark program of this institution. You know what I mean? And uh, it's always been really, really good. We have a passionate alumni base that's been so beneficial for us in giving us the resources that we need to be successful. And I knew um, when I was through the interview process that this was something that we could continue to build on. You know what I mean? And um, I do think that the the Owen 10 season and and Coach Brown and those guys did a pretty good job of building what they were doing. It just kind of had to hit bottom, I think, before we could bounce. You know what I mean? 
Um, and now that that bounce back has happened, it's on us to continue to build upon that and, and use that positive momentum uh, to kind of push us forward in the conference. And we play in such a talented conference with DelVal and, I mean, Lycoming and all those teams are such excellent football teams this year. Um, you're always going to play close games. And I think that was one of the big things for us that we kind of got into early in the season is that we needed to learn how to win again. And we played a lot of close games early on. And then as we started to play those games and get more and more comfortable in those games, we started to win some of those football games. Um, and that was a big confidence boost for our kids. And that was really a turning point for us in the season. Seriously about the Hobart stuff, though, right? Uh, 11 years as, a, as an assistant coach there. And I just look up and down the, the coaching staff and I see, yeah, Shane Sweeney. Yeah, I remember Jack Full. And I dig into, uh, <laughs> I dig into other bios. I see guys who coached there, guys who played there, guys who played at Hobart and coached at Endicott, which is a, a path that uh, a lot of people went. Um, what, how, much, yeah. how much of that? So you've got a lot of the people, right? And a lot of people who... Uh, mm -hmm. who Played and coached under Mike Craig for a long time. How much of that then yeah. is a is the philosophy transfers over, and how much of it do you? Uh, how much of your own spin goes into it? What's kind of the mix? Um, I think there is a mix. You know what I mean. I think I'm a mix of everything I've learned over my entire football career. I mean, my dad was a high school head coach for 40 years. I was the the benefit of being in a college football program at Western Michigan University where I had. I think four different uh, coordinators. I had three or four different quarterbacks coach, Danny Nose, who is now the offensive coordinator at Miami, um, Charlie Molnar, who works with the receivers and everything out in, uh, in Idaho. I mean, I've had a lot of really, really good influences throughout the course of my playing and coaching career. And, and I think what we do now is a combination of all those things. Um, I think we do have a lot of Hobart guys on our staff because they know and they understand what my expectations of them are. Um, and I trust them. You know what I mean? I think that in this business, you can surround yourself with people that you trust and that you care about and that care about your vision. Um, you're able to go a long way. And the kids see that. Um, our kids know that. They know that we're really good friends. They know that we enjoy being with one another. And that just sets the tone for what we are as a family within this football team. Um, and I think that it's an it's a super, super valuable thing to have people around you that are like that. And like I said, we spend a lot of time together off the field as well. So it's nice to be around your best friends, you know, all the time. And I think that's something that for recruits, for current players, for families, that's the environment we want to have here at Wilkes. And that's what we've been able to create in the year we've been here. Yeah, that's an aspect of it that I had not considered. That's a really good point about having all of your, all of your buddies, all of your friends uh, around you in that, in that job. That's really cool. Jose Tabora had a great year for you guys last year as quarterback. He did. You were a quarterback. You, uh, of course, the uh, offensive coordinator. Is What do you, A, I guess, what do you look for in a quarterback? And B, what do you look for for Tabora specifically as he goes into his senior season? Yeah, um, I, I think Jose Tabora is an excellent football player. And I've been really gifted as a coach to have some great quarterbacks from Nick Strang, Andrew Strom. Shane Sweeney. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of really, really good quarterbacks that I've had the opportunity to get along work with. And um, I've been the benefit of their experience and their talent um, more than anything else. I, I think for us at the quarterback position, something we really, really key on is the intelligence aspect, the being in control. We call it being a Q. Um, it's a 
it's a swagger, it's an intelligence, it's an attitude, it's a lifestyle uh, as far as how we carry ourselves and the things we do within the team and how, and how we play in the football field. I think those guys go out there every week and they're prepared and they know what's going to happen and that allows them to play at a really, really high level. One thing about Jose as he goes into his senior year, um, he has two years left of eligibility. So he's really only uh, a sophomore uh, this past year in eligibility. So he has two years left uh, to be on the football field. And that gives him a lot of time to continue to develop. I think that when you come in uh, in February and we changed everything to Pat, this was a wholesale change as far as philosophies go, as far as schemes go here. Uh, we changed a lot from what they had been doing in the past. So even the kids that were juniors and seniors in our program were really freshmen because they were just learning it for the first time. So now that Jose gets to go through another set of spring ball, he gets to go through another set of camp, he's only going to continue to develop in his knowledge of the system, his knowledge of the game, and what my expectations are of him. Um, and I expect big things from him as he continues to move forward. He won't take a step back. I have no problem with that at all. And he's a, he's a tough, hardworking kid that was actually coming off of a shoulder surgery the previous year. So he couldn't lift all the way up until the beginning of this season. So last spring, he couldn't lift at all. And he was just cleared to throw as we kind of got into fall camp this year. So he is still developing as a quarterback and as a player within our system. And I'm excited to see how his progress continues to go. But I mean, as far as what we look for in quarterbacks, just guys that are intelligent, that can really sling the ball and they kind of have that attitude about them. Like I'm the best player in the field because that's what you got to have. If you're going to be a starting quarterback at a college level. You also have uh, nine starters back on defense. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the defensive philosophy is like and who some of the standout guys are coming back. On the defensive side of the ball, those guys did such an excellent job, and they continue to get better, like I said, within the systems that we were running um, as the season went on. They took a big step forward and run defense uh, this year, which allowed us to get off the field on third down and fourth down. Um, and, and that led to us having such a high level of possession time. I think we finished first in our league in time possession this year. Uh, and controlling the clock and controlling the ball uh, was always an influence and always something that uh, I got kind of from Kevin Duall and those type of people that uh, really controlled the ball, the run game and the passing game. And that was something we were able to do offensively to help out our defense. Uh, Vinny Warner, Bud Moyer uh, are, are two big guys that are coming back. We have a couple of freshmen uh, in Micah Burden and uh, Najir Woods uh, that did an amazing job for us this year. And I'm looking forward to seeing those guys continue to grow in their roles. Uh, and then uh, some other young guys in the secondary that will do a great job stepping into some roles that are vacated. Um, I expect those guys to continue to roll as we move forward uh, with this upcoming season. And like I said, those guys were all freshmen too. Whether you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, it didn't matter. You were able to acclimate yourself as the season went on to our new systems and our checks that we were doing. And now they're just that much more comfortable and they're that much more knowledgeable within our system. I expect them to be able to play that much faster. What's your take on the Mac the first year through? You've got a, a couple of young, well, obviously a brand new program. You had a, a relatively mm -hmm. young program that made a huge step forward down at Misericordia. And, uh, yeah. and, and uh, it just seems like a really interesting league this year, if maybe not necessarily as dominant. Yeah, it's a different league. So being in the Liberty League, not as many teams, obviously. Um, and I think the depth of talent is different in that league where you had some teams that were kind of at the bottom of the league and you had some teams that were at the top of the league. In this league, anybody can beat anybody on any given weekend. Uh, and you see that in the scores. I mean, I think we had four teams that were four and four in our league in league play this year. 
And that is just an attribute to say that the talent level is all very, very good across the board. Um, and it does come down to your execution at, on a weekly basis. If you don't prepare for somebody in this league, you can't just walk in and get a win. That is not going to happen. Um, as I look at Del Val and, and some of the teams at the top of the league this year, like Miz and Stevenson, um, those teams talent-wise are super fast. I mean, I think that's one thing that I noticed um, coming from the Liberty League is the overall team speed was a little bit faster. I don't know that everybody was as big as they were uh, in the Liberty League in my previous experience, but um, I think as a league, this is such a competitive league and we push each other to be so successful. And that's one of the things that allows us to be successful in the playoffs. I think that our conference champion now um, over the last 10 years has played in the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight quite a few times, you know what I mean? So they're used to having success in the playoffs because of what they go through throughout the course of the regular season. And uh, all the head coaches in this league are excellent coaches. We have great assistant coaches in this league. And, you know, it's such a depth of talent. We're in such a unique area in the MAC and that you can get to New York City in an hour and a half, two hours. You can get to Philly in an hour and a half, two hours, and you can be in the DMV in about an hour and a half, two hours. You can't tell me that there's a better area for recruiting on the East Coast. Everybody from the Midwest is out here. Everybody from the South is out here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're competing against a lot of really, really good football teams as far as recruiting goes as well. And it's just because there's a depth of players in this area for sure. Last year kind of ended on a down note. Uh, you guys mm -hmm. uh, get shut out in a rivalry game against Kings. How, how does that kind of... Did that kind of change the story for you guys going into the offseason? Or is it something that maybe gives the team a little extra incentive to work in December, January, et cetera? I think it's motivation. You know what I mean? I think that we got our butts kicked and Kings did a spectacular job and they came in and uh, they did what they needed to do. And I think that it does leave a little bit of a bitter taste in our mouth um, as we move forward because that was an opportunity for us to play in postseason play too. Uh, and mm -hmm. it turned out not ending up that way. But um, – as we move forward, that is a consistent goal of ours as we move forward is to play in the postseason, uh, whether that be in a bowl game or in the NCAA playoffs. And uh, I think our guys are hard as work as they ever have been, and, and they're as driven and they're as motivated. And we have some sayings of be the change and go get your 1%. So our attitude, Pat, never really changes in the fact that we're always trying to push. We're always trying to make ourselves uncomfortable uh, to the fact that that's where growth happens. You know, if you're if you're not comfortable being uncomfortable, you're never going to be able to grow. And our guys understand that, and they continue to push one another, which is the best thing of all, I think, because the best-led teams I've ever been a part of are the teams that are led from within. It's not the coaching staff that's driving that change. It's the players that are driving that change. And the expectations that they hold of each other uh, hold each other accountable, and that makes a program go. And, and that's what we have right now. We have a group of kids that are holding each other accountable, uh, that are continuing to push, and, and they're not satisfied with where they're at. I mean, at five and five, some people could say, oh, man, you looked Apache on the back and that kind of thing. And we're not looking for that pat on the back because we're not where we need to be yet. Uh, we still have a long way to go to get to where we want to go. All right, so not to Pat Wilkes on the back, but they did have a, a really good season bouncing back. And I, one of the things that he, that uh, Coach Drock mentioned that uh, really struck me and stuck with me is when you're there, you're all in there, and when you're here, you're all in here. He talked about all the guys that he recruited who then, you know, for Hobart last year that went to Hobart and then uh, kind of completely jumping the ship and bringing a lot of Hobart guys with him. I think that's really the beauty of these off-season podcasts is to, to hear coaches talk about the craft and the life, um, you know, of course, during the season, we spend so much time talking about the games and things players did and accomplished. But th there's so much that goes into these uh, these coaching decisions where you're you're 
first, when you get this offer or you go interview, you have to decide, is this an institution that I can honestly sit down in front of a kid or his parents and say, you should send this person here for the next four years of their life. And really that university in a lot of ways stays with you uh, for much longer than, than four years. So can you, can you pick a place uh, that you, that you believe in, right? A place that you have a chance to win. And then how much support do you have from the administration? How much leeway do you have to, um, to build the program in your image, your style, what you want to run, bring the people you want to bring. It sounds like uh, Coach Drop got all of that. And so you, that's why you see the heavy Hobart and Endicott influence. Um, and and those, that thing, those things change over time. You know, when, when positions open up, you um, end up, you may get applications from someone you never met before and you have to make a decision off one interview or, or a resume or a recommendation or whatever. But I, it's interesting to hear him talk about how much goes into picking that next place because it's the place you're going to spend you know, a good portion of your life, all of your effort. Uh, you may raise your kids there or move there with your wife or, or you know, you're living in not necessarily always the most glamorous places in the world, but, um, but you're doing something, I think, from a coach's perspective that you believe in. And if you, you contrast this point where, where, uh, where Wilkes is, you want to maximize what a university can possibly get or what a football program can possibly get out of that program. Hopkins, what they did last season is sort of what the end goal of that looks like, right? Where you, where you, you know, you've, you've made your program proud and gotten the, almost the most you could get out of it. Back for the final interview segment here on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. And this is an interview that was conducted by Frank Rossi, who was, uh, I guess, probably acting in the uh, role of D3Football.com broadcast sideline guy. But you can also hear him talk a lot about the East region on his In the Huddle podcast with James Baker. Here he talked with Tevin Jones. Tevin Jones, the player who was not starting at linebacker for Mary Harden-Baylor in Stag Bowl 46. You know, last year, about a year ago, Mary Harden-Baylor back in the Stag Bowl, that was kind of your breakout year. It's the last time a lot of people saw you on the field. Take me through that game. I, that was a cold one, and uh, Mary Harden-Baylor lost it 12 to nothing. But tell me, tell me about the excitement of that game and, you know, your memories of it. Um, well, yeah, you kind of hit it on the head. It was a cold one. And so, I mean, I knew right then and there it was going to be a battle, just kind of fighting that. But, I mean... It was exciting in the fact that I was a starter and I know I was going to play a huge role. Me and Coach Fredenberg actually kind of had a little conversation before the game. He was like, you know, I could see this really being a big game for you. And so I kind of went into it with some nerves. But um, overall, it was a great experience. You know, we didn't come out the way we wanted it to. But um, just to be on that stage, you know, kind of the pinnacle, especially for Division Three, you know, having a chance to play on ESPN, um, it was a memory for sure. So that was the last time we saw you on the mm-hmm. field. You did not play in 2018. Uh, some uh, things transpired. Quote, just to air it out, I'm transferring from UMHB. Without getting into too much detail, the coaches want me to lie for them and take the fall for something that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Karma is MF, by the way. So, okay, let, let's lead into what led to that mm-hmm. first. 
and then what transpired subsequent to that. So what happened? Why, why this tweet in the first place? Um, so just to state, it was really an emotional kind of fueled tweet in response to everything. But <clears throat> so right before fall camp, I believe the Thursday before fall camp, um, me and my buddy go out and um we only go to we went to one bar so to speak and um didn't have much to drink and i guess it had triggered a psychosis and basically a psychosis is a disconnect from reality in a sense and you just kind of have delusions about everything and so um that kind of led to me running into some legal issues i ended up getting arrested that same night and so um i ran into some legal issues and i ended up missing the start of fall camp uh I, so fall camp was that following saturday and so i missed that i missed reporting day and um i sit down with the staff or i sit down with coach fred the administration and we just kind of go through the details of that night and um uh i've i was at the time thinking i had been drugged and that it wasn't it didn't stem from a psychosis but it, it, it was psychosis and so um coach fredenberg wanted me to come out and get in front of get in front of the whole thing before speculation went out and just kind of own up to it and you know kind of admit that there was some fault in there on my part and <clears throat> i was just at the time so emotional i didn't feel like i had I had made a mistake and I, I genuinely felt like i had been drugged just because of the way things transpired and the way i had the way it kind of led on to stuff that I wouldn't actually do in my right mindset. And so I just felt like I was drugged, but that wasn't the case. And so um, I kind of came out and with those emotional fuel tweets and it was uh, just said some things that just weren't true. And I really kind of regret it. So the school uh, subsequently, uh, I think after some <coughs> other things that may have transpired uh, immediately following the tweet storm, um, they uh, disassociated with you mm -hmm. essentially uh, stated that you were no longer enrolled how did that make you feel and did that sort of cause you to get seek help immediately or did it actually cause the ball to keep rolling down that mountain a little bit faster and harder um i think at the time it caused the ball to just kind of keep rolling um i hadn't really got a grip on my emotions just yet um, I was still really emotional about just not playing ball and kind of just the response I was getting. And um, so it was just an emotional fuel thing. And just whenever I, whenever they came out, my dad was the one who kind of told me like they were taking down my thing on the field house because I got elected captain. And so I was just like, man, it's just one thing after another. And so it just really just mounted everything else that already went went down so now you uh, for a lot of folks that don't know are uh, basically a forever native of uh, the belton mm -hmm. texas area i went to belton high school which is right down the street from uh, mary harden baylor um you've been staying with the grandparents i understand mm -hmm. uh, who've uh, been tremendous in trying to be support for you mm -hmm. What finally triggered you seeking, let's say, some sort of help here mm -hmm. with what you identify as, as psychosis? So um, a few weeks had passed and things didn't really progress as far as me getting over the emotional part of it. And kind of I was still experiencing some delusions and everything. And eventually I just one day, one morning I woke up and just kind of had a mental breakdown, so to speak. and kind of went on a rampage, if you will, in their backyard and just destroyed some things. And um, that was just kind of the straw 
<clears throat> and my family was like, okay, you need help. And I went and checked in into a facility for about two weeks in Georgetown. And that's when I kind of got the help I needed and got on the right meds and everything. And so they had initially, they had came out and diagnosed it as uh, schizophrenia, but I mean, that's kind of, that diagnosis hasn't really been, they kind of threw that out the window when they realized, you know, I didn't really exhibit any signs of, or symptoms of schizophrenia or anything like that. They kind of wanted to put it up as far as being bipolar more so. And at the time it was more the right diagnosis because I was still kind of experiencing a flurry of emotions and having these excessive highs and excessive lows. And so, um, but that event in itself was still psychosis nonetheless. So I got the help I needed from that facility and now I'm on the right meds right now. How confident are you that you're on the right path? What, what are you doing uh, besides taking meds that makes you feel more assured that this is something of the past and that the future is much brighter for you? Um, just the fact that I've kind of had time to sit back and really take a look at things and how they transpired and know that I was in the wrong in some aspects and especially the aspect of um, coming out and saying the things that I said about the school, about the coach and them wanting me to lie like that wasn't true. And um, I just knew it was a part of myself and is becoming a man is one of those things is owning up to your mistakes and that was something that I needed to do and so this was the first step. Now uh, Tuff has talked to Coach Fredenberg uh, since uh, the events uh, and how has that gone? Uh, what is his response been to you generally? Um, it's always been nothing but love from Coach Fred and that's kind of how it was in the beginning but his response was just like I thought it was something chemically going on with you and um, that was kind of the thought of a lot of people around me and he was just like um, I wanted I wanted this to be like your year just as much as you wanted it to be and um, I just kind of I hate that things happen the way they did but he's he's kind of he's always embraced me with open arms with all my issues that I've had so after uh, some of the discussions you had, uh, you posted on Instagram and uh, quoting you again, this was from uh, November 29th, so uh, not that long ago. Uh, this year by far has been the most challenging mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I was really forced to take a step back from life and make God a priority and deal with issues that come back to haunt me. Back in August, I experienced a second bout with psychosis and it threw off everything that I worked for. It caused me to do, say and do things that wasn't me whatsoever. In the process, I made a statement about the coaching staff at UMHB that wasn't true and was basically a result of an emotional response from my psychosis. I've since made amends with Coach Fredenberg and apologized for the whole ordeal. So you wrote that um, and it seems like you're trying to take a step mm -hmm. to the future at this point. Would you like to return to Mary Hart and Baylor at some point in time and continue your football career? You have a year of eligibility mm -hmm. left, obviously. Um, I would, I would love to, honestly, um, just kind of finish what I started. I know this kind of wrench kind of put a dampen on things, but I would love to return. Um, I love that school. I love the relationships that I've built there, um, just the environment, the people, and especially being in my hometown. Um, I've experienced nothing but support and love from that whole school system. And so I just returning would Returning would be in my best interest, especially for school, considering I've only got a year left in my studies. And so just wanting to finish out with that team and with that coaching staff and um, 
just finishing my degree would be something I'd love to do. Let's say you had an opportunity to talk to Dr. O'Rare, uh, who is the president of UMHB. Mm -hmm. you know, he may have some role in this decision as much as anybody. Mm -hmm. What would you say to him right now about what's happened in the last few months and you know, what the future could be instead of the past? Um, I would just kind of express to him like my regrets for one, kind of what I initially came out and said, and then pitch to him the what I've done as far as taking my steps and further and doing my best to become a better person and address the issues that I haven't necessarily addressed in the past, so that these don't these same symptoms and issues don't continue to pop up. So. For anybody out there that would say that you've been disassociated with the team for the last mm -hmm. few months and you know you haven't been necessarily supportive you may have been more of a problem than a benefit to this team mm -hmm. this year uh, have you been in communication with your teammates and what has their reaction been over the last few months um yeah i've definitely i've stayed in contact with a lot of the guys on the team and um it's just been they've been supportive of me the whole time i mean they understand they understood that you know it was just something that I wasn't myself in the whole situation, and they they always expressed to me how much they loved me and they wished I was on the team. And so I mean, I would send them texts before games, just encouraging them, saying just go out there and finish kind of what we started from three, four years ago. Obviously, Keith, we had other opportunities to talk about mental health this year, so I'm really glad to hear that uh, Tevin Jones is getting the help that he needs, and that the program is open to having him return. My favorite thing about the interview is I think when you hear Tevin tell it in his own words, he becomes honestly a bit of a sympathetic figure. And you realize he missed perhaps the greatest season in Mary Harden-Baylor history, one of the top two, one he was supposed to be a huge part of, but how he talks about his team and his teammates is all love. And it's kind of a reminder, and it ties into the Kamara and Margraf interview, that everything about finding a fit in a program is about finding the place that's going to feel like your family and support you as more than a football player. Yeah, I would totally agree on him uh, being a sympathetic figure here. Uh, we understand Tevin Jones is enrolled at Mary Harden Baylor this semester, and certainly that would bode well for him coming back in the fall. So it sounds like he's getting things in order, and that's great to hear. You know, and, and on top of that, too, to be able to open up about it and to talk about it, like, there's a good chance that somebody's going to hear his interview and they may not be going through the exact same problem or, you know, even know what it is to be bipolar or to deal with psychosis or any of those things. But to, to hear a linebacker for that one of the top programs in the country, just kind of be very open and, and free about it. Right. Um, maybe give somebody else the strength to, to, to do that too. Right. What's more, macho for lack of a better term and i apologize maybe that's not the best word than uh a football player a linebacker a texas football player linebacker opening up about this it really does uh, i think indicate to a lot of people that it's okay to talk about it yeah i mean strength is not you know just things you you, you see in a in a caricature of a football player right strength is sometimes uh, going through your your downs and, and figuring out how to get up and and being able to say, hey, I need support from the football program, being able to say I was wrong. I mean, that's something that life lesson, you know, you, you probably we deal with adults in our in our lives and our day jobs where uh, people, you know, people much older than, than than Tevin Jones don't have that strength to admit when they're wrong and, and to be able to take a step back and say, I need help. So I, I think that's something that anybody listening 
you know, maybe can learn from it. And we kind of appreciate him for opening up to Frank. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time of the podcast where we dive into Twitter. It's the off season, but we know there are still questions. So uh, we still throw out that reminder on Twitter to hit us up when it's time for uh, Keith and for me to step into the studio. And uh, this question comes from Jeremy Rikus, who is at FireUpChips92. Yeah, you know, just like FireUpChips92 would normally be spelled. Asking any conference alignment changes and how about new or newly renovated stadiums? Uh, Because... You know, sometimes we don't even know about stadium renovations and they may not have been announced yet and still could happen between now and the fall. I thought maybe we'd focus on the conference alignment stuff. We talked earlier, of course, about uh, Husson moving from the ECFC to the Commonwealth Coast Conference. We have a new conference. Uh, sorry, we have a new team in Division Three football for the fall, and that will be Keystone College, which will be joining the ECFC. Keystone is in northeastern Pennsylvania in kind of the same area as Wilkes-Barre and as uh, Misericordia. We hope to talk with them at some point over the course of this offseason. Uh, we lose Thomas Moore and we lose Frostburg State out of Division Three football altogether. And then I think we've had most of the uh, most of that New England shuffle has happened already, but I believe this is the year that Buffalo State then moves into the Liberty League, and that makes the Liberty League a little more interesting as well. I mean, I'm pretty thrilled that you can do most of that off the top um, because it gave me enough time to uh, to poke around in uh, in Google Drive and find the uh, the chart we use okay. for uh, for kickoff to see if we've forgotten anything um, important. And Benedictine, of course, had uh, was planning to move to Division Two, and then they unplanned, so that didn't happen. Uh, we have a fully staffed American Southwest Conference. There's nothing new there. I'm just kind of scrolling down now. Um, you know, nobody goes into the NESCAC and the CCIW is a full 10 teams. You know, we've talked about this before is everybody being kind of conferenced up. But um, we do have oh, one more change in that Southern Virginia is leaving the, uh, the NJAC to go to the old Dominion Athletic Conference. And so the uh, NJAC will be down two teams because Frostburg State is leaving. So the NJAC will have some non-conference games to fill. Yeah, but and I think in that part of the country, it's actually fine to have non-conference games um, because I guess to some degree, I guess the MAC doesn't have games yeah, they have, uh, open anymore. They but have, the yeah, they have two because of the way they they've structured that schedule now with the eleven teams and eight games or something. I feel like the Liberty League, because it's such a small conference, always needs games and their New England program. They're basically programs in driving distance. You know, if you're in the NJAC, you can get to New York, New England, the PAC country, which is way out Western Pennsylvania, and anywhere in the Mid Atlantic. So you're much better off uh, looking for games out of the NJAC than you are uh, out of the Northwest Conference, let's say. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the Southern Virginia move is a, is a good fit for them uh, travel wise. Uh, to the ODAC, and the ODAC is kind of smartly positioning itself to not ever lose its uh, automatic qualifier. I think the top 25 is going to look a little different without ever seeing. We just got used to the sight of Frostburg uh, in the top 25, and and yeah. Thomas Moore. Uh, this was the first year they they were kind of in and out, and and not really a contender the whole way through. 
But I think, Pat, this leaves us without an independent. Am I, that's where you were going with that earlier, right? Yeah, we are uh, we are out of independence. Uh, I should also mention that Earlham is leaving uh, is leaving football as well, if you did not catch that, which uh, was announced in November. So we'll have 248 Division Three football programs next year, which uh, is down from the peak of uh, a full 250 that we had this year. Yeah, and, and I don't remember a year really where the number has gone down. There always have been... A uh, couple programs adding, programs moving, and, and programs either folding or or f- finding other homes. So this is definitely the kind of the the biggest mix of of all that at one uh, at once. But I, I think that the the Thomas More and the Frostburg State, uh, both those those programs move into Division Two. Um, uh, one to the NAIA. I'm sorry, both those programs leaving for Browner Pastures. Um, <laughs> Oh well, I I think that's the most significant uh, changes among these. That's is that is that a comment on uh, Crestview Hills, Kentucky, or Frostburg, Maryland? I was just saying, if it's not D three, this is where this is greener pastures, the greenest. Yeah, whatever, the greenest of all the pastures. So keep an eye out for when we throw that out sometime in February. We'll ask. Uh, we'll have you uh, another opportunity for you to ask questions. You can also just throw stuff at us on Twitter in the intervening month before we come back with our, our February podcast. So it's not like we have anything else to do. Uh, Keith has, you know, got a day job, and I'm sure he's going to take some time off. And I'm going to go cover basketball. I'm going to go cover the Hope Calvin rivalry, which is the uh, Johnny Tommy game of Division Three mm. football. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. They have the uh, Division Three attendance record with uh, over 11,000 at a basketball game. Uh, this will be the 200th uh, meeting that will be coming up in the uh, first weekend of February. So that is uh, more basketball than anybody wants on this podcast, I'm sure. I think I'm sure somebody out there likes Division Three football and basketball at the same time. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 234, released on January 24th, 2019. Thanks for listening. And, of course, keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like this podcast, I haven't said this in almost a month, but you know how it works, right? You rate it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, you know, wherever you get your podcast because that will help other football fans find it. And you can leave comments for us on the blog page. You can reach us to talk more about Division 3 football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division 3 sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Greg Camara, John Drock, Tevin Jones, and sports information directors Ernie LaRosa and Vince Scalzo for their time and their assistance in putting together this edition of our show. Thanks to Frank Rossi for that original interview of Tevin Jones. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. We are in the offseason here in Division Three football, and it's a long, long offseason. But there's still new content on the website, on d3football.com, on a regular basis, as we will follow coaching changes as the uh, offseason goes on. We will uh, keep an eye on players who have pro pos- prospects. We'll catch up with uh, 2019 football schedules and, uh, and more, and you can find a new podcast in this feed from us every month. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. <laughs>